Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. Dan Wallach, Dan Leslie, OG crew is back. And we have a football-only episode today. And boy, do we have some topics. Three favorite ones that we've covered extensively in the last 365 days. Deshaun Watson, a new civil case filed against him. Dan Snyder, the ESPN, comes out with their full investigation with some interesting details. Uh, We'll say very interesting. And number three, an update on the St. Louis Rams saga. We have not put a pin really in that story since we still don't know who's paying uh, you know, the NFL's legal fees. So we do have an update on that from Dan, some big stories. I don't know. Where do you want to start? Some interesting stuff today. I don't know. It's just like, you know, how Hollywood loves sequels. Conduct Detrimental loves going back to the well on the St. Louis Rams, Dan <laughs> Snyder and Deshaun Watson. This is definitely old home week back here at Conduct Detrimental. But these are three really important stories. And I think we should lead with the Deshaun Watson breaking news because that could potentially open up a Pandora's box of does this ever have an end? Is he going to be playing defense for the rest of his career every time a new victim, alleged victim, emerges with a lawsuit? I think you addressed the issue perfectly on Twitter. So you want to just sort of lead off with that story and how this might impact you know his career, his playing status, if at all, and just uh, go with it and we'll, we'll address it. I think it's pretty easy. You know, it's funny, Dan, you and I, whether our listeners know it or not, we've been offered to teach CLEs on the Deshaun Watson saga. And it's been, you know, at this point, it's been about two months since we've really discussed it. That's when the settlement was reached on the uh, 11 week suspension. And now all of a sudden, right, uh, we're going to kind of uh, dust off our notes and figure out what's going on. So here's a brief refresher, right? 24 active lawsuits were filed. There was a 25th, but it was dismissed because the uh, woman didn't want to reveal her name. But 24 lawsuits were active at one point in time. 23 of those were settled. One does still remain active trial case after this year's Super Bowl in April. One individual does not want to settle. The NFL's suspension, right, an 11-week suspension that was reached after, you know, it was initially a a four-game suspension, but or six-game suspension, I apologize, but neither here nor there. What was underreported, and Dan, I referenced it briefly online, is that the NFL settlement, and I'd love to go back and forth with you on this one, the, the NFL settlement of the Watson suspension also included the fine print according to Tom Pelissero of NFL Network, that essentially, right, if there was another claim brought against Watson or a lawsuit that was relating to an incident between 2019 and 2011, where these acts were alleged to have occurred, it would not result in an extension of his suspension or a new suspension. So in theory, right, it's almost like, Dan, like res judicata, right, that these things have already been settled, issue, issue preclusion, whatever you want to call it. But there was, in theory, a cap that's placed on his suspension. So new lawsuits, in theory, under the NFL's Suspension would not extend it. So yeah, Dan, the news, a 26th lawsuit has been filed by someone not named Tony Busby. And Dan, I see you shaking your head, so I will give you the floor. But that's that's the facts. That's where we are. Dan, that wasn't the fine print. That was sort of one of the most material, essential terms of the settlement agreement. Because if you're Deshaun Watson and the NFLPA, you've already been sued, right? 20 some odd times. you got to be able. It's not a cap. It's he's being punished for a course of conduct over a multi-month or a multi-year period. I mean, there, there were four cases that were prosecuted, 20 some odd lawsuits that are brought. If you're Watson, you've got to insist that the suspension cover all conduct, related conduct, similar conduct occurring within that course of time. Otherwise, it becomes like Inspector Javert, where Goodell, you know, and Busby and other other litigants and plaintiff's attorneys are basically hounding Deshaun Watson for the rest of his career. It becomes like the NFL version of Les Miserables. You need to be able to have closure. And I think the NFL was very comfortable 
agreeing to a provision like that, but it was something that was demanded, had to have been demanded by Deshaun Watson. Otherwise, any settlement agreement is a non-starter uh, because he's leaving himself open to future suspensions. And there's a four-year statute of limitations. So for conduct occurring through late 19, 20, early 21, uh, you're talking about uncertainty until 2025, where the suspension possibility is looming over his head. And that was definitely a clause that Deshaun Watson and the NFLPA fought hard for to make sure it was in that settlement agreement, it would have been legal malpractice and foolishness and a bad, bad settlement agreement to, to allow this type of suspension to take root, take hold without having closure on that period of time. And I think that was an obvious layup and, and an easy one for NFLPA to, to, to insist upon. And I don't think the NFL would have pushed hard on it. It wasn't just their settlement agreement. You referred to it as the NFL settlement agreement. Deshaun Watson and the NFLPA were co-signatories to that. They drafted the agreement as well. And the agreement reflects both of their understandings, agreements as to how to settle this case. This is where I wanted to take this, at least this, this small aspect, and then we can get into the nature of the allegations. But I, I remember you and I, Dan, and, and we spent a lot of time talking about the St. Louis Ram stuff as well. Who has leverage when you're barreling towards the courtroom, right? I think the point, and we'll, we'll talk about the Rams in a, in a few minutes, but like, you know, I, I think that city of St. Louis wielded a lot more leverage than you know, I, I, that, that 790 number is big, probably could have got more as you got closer to trial. Now, with respect to the NFL, I think you and I felt pretty good about the NFL's chances, you know, if this did end up in a, in a federal courtroom, just with the precedent on the book. So to me, I think the NFL had a lot of leverage and that, you know, that language and Dan, you know, I look at releases constantly. I look at contracts about revocability, right? You could say in a release, I want to release all claims unknown or, you know, known, right? You can make it very, I don't know, very vague. This is like the vaguest of all vagaries, right? It just says anything that happened between 2019 and 2021 that are similar. I know you'll, you'll see where I'm going with it, Dan, but like the allegations here, we have some specificity, right? And, we, and when I've read all the complaints with respect to the everything that's public with respect to lawsuits one through 25, but what's not public, Dan, is the nature of the allegations with those four particular, you know, alleged victims that were part of the NFL's case. So we don't know if these allegations here, which are essentially, you know, the, the gist of it is that Watson propositioned someone for sex. And then uh, I guess the phrasing is that he then forced her into uh, oral sex. So it's different than some of the allegations. Some are somewhat similar, but I'm not sure how this compares vis-a-vis -vis the four that the NFL handpicked to be a, a part of these, these disciplinary hearings. Deshaun Watson had the leverage as well, lest we forget when we left off with this settlement, Deshaun Watson had scored what I consider a major upset before an NFL, NFLPA appointed arbitrator. Sue Robinson did find him to have committed the conduct and, and substantiated the NFL's allegations but in terms of fair and consistent discipline. She found that the right amount was, it was six games and she basically did, did a comparison with all the other NFL uh, you know, punishments rendered for violent and nonviolent sexual assault, there was a baseline that was established. You have a federal district, former federal district court judge who had been on the bench for 25 years, coming up with a pretty solid you know, analysis as to why the suspension of only six games was appropriate. He had the leverage. He agreed to more than six games. And yeah, it would have gone to an appeal before an NFL selected arbitrator. And we know that that arbitrator, we can pretty much surmise that that arbitrator would have given Watson everything the NFL asked for, but Jeffrey Kessel would have run into federal court in the District of Delaware. He would have won that race to the courthouse, and 
if you have a member of the Delaware federal judiciary looking at this entire, you know, sort of, you know, the two rulings, the analysis, the deep analysis that, you, that Sue Robinson had come up with, I think it's an embarrassment for the National Football League to basically usurp the authority of the disciplinary officer that they had a part in selecting. There was an optic there that even if the NFL won the battle, they would lose the PR war. Obviously, the public wanted Deshaun Watson to be punished. The media wanted him to be punished. But to have proceeded before a partial arbitrator, it would have really created the impression that the NFL is just making up the rules as it goes along. And everything is just at least the appointment of Sue Robinson was meaningless. And they basically kneecapped her. So the league wanted to avoid that, coupled with the severe risk of a loss that the league would have faced in federal district court in Delaware, or maybe even in the Southern District of New York, uh, because now we have a ruling and an analysis by a longtime federal judge, and then you would have a member of the federal judiciary deciding whether to agree with the federal judge or the partisan hack arbitrator selected by the National Football League. And I think the, the NFL was equally motivated to avoid that kind of circus where everything would come out in the docket with the proceedings below, the transcripts, witness testimony, all of it would have been public record. And that might have been embarrassing for the National Football League. And I think it would have, it obviously made sense for both sides, not just Watson, but also for the NFL to avoid that kind of circus. And they got what they wanted. They got an agreement from Deshaun Watson and the NFLPA to give Deshaun Watson the longest suspension in the history of the personal conduct policy for not just violent sexual, not just nonviolent sexual assault, but also more severe than any violent sexual assault has ever been punished under this policy. So it's a win for the NFL. You don't get everything you want, but I think they can hold it out there as a punishment that's unprecedented. So it's a W for the for the NFL. But does Watson have to basically, you know, be in, in abeyance and in just inactive for the rest of his career? Does he have to lose his career over this? That's the question. And I don't think so. I don't think the punishment pleased or satisfied everybody, but it's unprecedented and it's it's much more severe than any other player has ever received. I'm going to agree largely with with what you said. And I don't, actually, I don't, I don't really disagree with anything. I think the point that I that I think, you know, in a vacuum, right, if it's one additional case, I don't think it's going to shock anybody. And Dan, you and I were talking offline. And again, we had to kind of refresh ourselves in some of these numbers here. 23 cases were settled, right? So one was active before this. Now we have another active and, and then someone just, you know, withdrew their own lawsuit. So whatever count you want to make, 26 lawsuits have been filed at some point in this case. Now, separately, Tony Busby, we'd spent, you know, now, Dan, over a year talking about this case, a year and a half almost. But Tony Busby has been attached to every case that has been filed to this point. Tony Busby is not attached to this 26th lawsuit. This is a, a, another lawyer that has not previously been involved with the case. Now, Tony Busby also threatened to sue the Houston Texans and bring them into the case based on what they knew, if they facilitated what was going on, civil conspiracy, we talked all about it. The Texans very quickly settled those cases. But what was interesting is the number that Tony Busby reported that was settled were 30 cases that the Texans settled with 30 individual alleged victims. So I think everybody knew, right? Okay, it's not going to shock anybody if more lawsuits, because it's it's odd, right? Texans are being brought in on a theory of responding at superior, vicarious liability, whatever you want to call it. It would be odd that the Texans have more claims against them than Deshaun Watson. So it's not going to shock me if there are 30 lawsuits 
filed against Deshaun Watson. But what is interesting, you know, we'll see if this is someone that has switched attorneys. Maybe that would make more sense. But in theory, it's the first person that has not used Tony Busby. So to me, the number might be 30, 31. But we'll see how high this number gets, Dan. And we'll see if there's more pressure applied. I'm just saying, if we get to five more lawsuits, right, then all of a sudden the NFL has got to answer some tough questions here. Dan, it's over. It's over. It's all over. This is a settlement agreement that encompasses a a fairly lengthy time period. You you hit the nail on the head on Twitter. This is not a disciplinary situation. It's covered or or carved out, not carved out, but it's encompassed by the settlement agreement. There's not going to be any NFL discipline. You haven't heard statements from Tony Busby in the last couple of weeks. He's moved on. The NFL has moved on. Deshaun Watson has moved on. We should move on. I think all that remains are just damage claims brought by one attorney that's going to play out in a civil court, and, and, and Watson will settle that case. At some point, we all have to move on. And the prospect of Deshaun Watson facing supplementary discipline over the same type of allegation that's covered by the settlement agreement is just absolutely preposterous. It's not going to happen. And I think I've reached a point now where I I think we need to put Deshaun Watson to bed, you know, figuratively once and for all. I mean, this is this is just insane that these people just emerge out of the woodwork with new claims that are covered by that period. Yeah, I'm not my and my point, I'm not raising it for discipline. I I mean, I'm just saying the NFL is going to have to answer the question because, Dan, whether you and I would like it or not, at least as of right now, there is a trial, a civil sexual assault lawsuit against Deshaun Watson for April of 2023. So we can be sick of it all we want. And we could say there's no more, you know, discipline coming on the NFL level, but there is still a case out there. And, you know, there is still a story to be told. And this is the slippery slope. Dan, this is a slippery slope. When when Paul Tagliabue was commissioner, when when Pete Rozelle was commissioner, you never had any of this, you know, disciplinary apparatus being invoked during uh, pending civil lawsuits, or even during pending criminal cases, there was always an adjudication, a guilty plea, something, something that was finality in the justice system before the the NFL acts. Now we have this new world where the NFL is, is playing the role of investigator, judge, jury, adjudicator of all this conduct before it's ever reached even a jury. I think that's the weakness of the current collective bargaining agreement, and that is it has empowered the NFL to jump the gun and conduct, come up with its own findings and investigate, investigative summaries before juries have done that, before judges have done that. And it empowers civil litigation plaintiffs to basically in, in allege victims, to hold play, to extort players, to hold them over the barrel with the threat of more litigation unless they pony up more money. And that's the risk here. The players have left themselves exposed to the power of the, of the civil litigation system, that the mere filing of a complaint can have career altering consequences. And we've never had a judgment on any of this stuff with Deshaun Watson. It's always been the threats of more lawsuits, the threats of discovery, the threats of going to trial. It's just it, it's just a bad system. It really is. So, Dan, I think we can end, end that there. And uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye on, on the Watson case. But um, I think you, you certainly said it well. Now, turning to another story that I don't think, Dan, you and I are sick of yet. And I think we are very much expecting another shoe to drop very soon. That is Dan Snyder and the Washington Commanders. So, Dan, um, well, I'll see if you feel the same way, right? Dan Snyder is a guy who has been accused of a lot of things, right? There has been talk of NDAs 
days, there's been talk of million dollar plus sexual assault settlements, cheerleader, um, you know, allegations with respect to uh, allegations kind of akin to voyeurism, right? It's allegations of lack of institutional control, skimming money, cooking the books. Dan Snyder, right? Dan, he shares the first name with us. But other than that, we don't have that much in common with him. The man is a cockroach. Doesn't seem like there is anything that can kill him. Until, until you get some new news, maybe uh, the Mary Jo White investigation or this report from ESPN today, we're recording this on Thursday, that Dan Snyder, in his own way, his form of preemptive defense, according to ESPN reports, he is paying tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars to lawyers on a monthly basis. And part of their job, according you know to the, this ESPN report, is to dig up dirt on other owners in the league and even Roger Goodell. So you talk about scorched earth, digging up dirt on the other owners to try to, you know, uh, manage your way and, and keep a stranglehold on the team. It's it's not looking great. We have an owners meeting, Dan, uh, in about a week. It's at the you know, middle of October. I mean, uh, people are talking about counting the votes again. We'll see if we get there. But Dan, I know you have a lot of thoughts on this front, but that's the latest. The story that well, Snyder is digging up dirt to try to save his you-know-what. It will in political campaigns, I guess they call that doing opposition research. For litigation attorneys, they call that, you know, sort of having cross-examination material for a potential deponent or a potential witness. But in this instance, it really comes across as improper surveillance, the use of private investigators to intimidate the National Football League and the owners, that their dirty laundry is going to be exposed. And when you have, I think you pointed it out to me that Reed Smith, this law firm, is on a retainer. For half a million dollars. Seems like a flat rate. At $6 million per year, when there are no, to my knowledge, any active lawsuits pending, you know, this is just simply a scorched earth intimidation tactic to embolden or to, or to at least remain as a member of the fraternity of NFL owners. And, you know, when you talk about digging up dirt and using private investigators that you have the goods on Roger Goodell or you know, Jerry Jones has his own problems and, 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 and Snyder may know stuff, you're creeping very quickly into the area of invasion of privacy. And the owners, the league, Goodell, they are not without recourse here. Eventually, if if he follows through on this on this threat and releases information surreptitiously through news organizations, and we know, we can pretty much suspect that he's he may be behind the leaks to the New York Times and Wall Street Journal surrounding John Gruden. But this is why you have invasion of privacy as a tort. And that lever is going to be available someday for any owner or any person who has his dirty laundry exposed like that and has private investigators snooping around into the private details of their life. I think what the NFL has to do, they have to come to the realization sooner or later, and they should do it now, that this problem will never go away. Snyder, his legal issues will never go away. And I, I think this article from ESPN may be one of the, one of the final straws because Snyder's going to do what he's going to do regardless and he's going to do it someday in, in the future. He could do it now. He could do it five years from now. They need to act accordingly now. The line in the NFL Constitution and bylaws, the, the conduct line that you can't cross, is the name of our show, Dan. It's conduct detrimental to the welfare of the league. And at this point, he's so far over the line, he can't even see the line anymore. And I realize that the owners may be waiting for an investigative report from Mary Jo White, something, something that can be the hook 
under which they can invoke, you know, the Article 8 or Section 8.3 A and B of the NFL Constitution, which is basically to have Goodell or one of the owners recommend uh, that Dan Snyder forfeit, forfeit his interest for conduct detrimental to the welfare of the NFL. I think the league would like something a little bit more, a less ambiguous than invoking the conduct detrimental language, which is so hovering and broad-based that Snyder might actually have a good legal defense if that's the language that the league is using to force him to sell his ownership interest. But at some point, the league has to take action. He is hurting the business of the league and his threats and this persistent threat is going to hang over the league in perpetuity unless and until they get rid of them. And he certainly committed enough misconduct at this point and caused enough mischief to lead the owners and, and, and or the commissioner to recommend this next course of action. The issue is when are they going to wait for Mary Jo White or are they going to do it on Tuesday? We are at this point, as of this recording, we are nine months into the Mary Jo White investigation. Beth Wilkinson took a year and change, so I wouldn't necessarily expect a resolution that quickly. But nine months in, I don't know, it it wouldn't be shocking to get in the month, but I just I don't think we're going to get it, you know, the next month or two. I think it's going to take a little bit longer. But Dan, let's let's talk about conduct detrimental to the league. There's another part of this ESPN story that I found very fascinating. The fact, and and this has all been well reported, it's nothing really new to people in the space, but that Washington, despite being in a major media market, that the owners are maybe even more angry with the, um, we'll say the financial performance or lack thereof, of the Washington commanders in that market. And Dan, we, you know, I, I have a lot of Washington fans in my life. I see them on Twitter. People really just don't like this team under Snyder's ownership. It's not that the fact, it's not purely the fact that the team, you know, is not, you know, doing well and, um, you know, I think, and as of this recording, they just beat the just beat the Bears, which isn't saying much. But attendance has been down. They used to have a ninety thousand seat capacity in the stadium. They've reduced that to sixty six thousand. They are among the lowest drawing gates in the entire league, despite being a storied franchise, despite being in a major media market. Dan, we covered a story at length about this cooking the book scenario. Just for people that don't know, that was when there would be you know certain ticket revenue at Washington Commanders games. There was an allegation that they would pretend that that revenue was actually associated with like country music concerts. I think the name was like Kenny Chesney or like Navy football games. And he would, the books would be underreported as to football revenue. And then that revenue wouldn't be shared with other owners. So between, you know, the, the team not performing well in a system of revenue sharing, which that money could go to other owners pockets. And then an allegation that not only is the team not performing well, that it's maybe performing better than, than Snyder's giving indication for the ESPN article makes it seem that, that allegation, right? It's one thing to have some personal improprieties, right? Jerry Jones is a guy who has a lot of different allegations and, you know, uh, dirt that is that is out there. It's publicly reported. But Jerry Jones is on the other end of it. He's an ambassador for the league. He helps increase the money of the league. The Dallas franchise is one of the most valuable franchises in all sports. And Snyder's on the other end of it. So that's why, if anybody's asking, why aren't you paying attention to Jerry Jones' allegations? Why aren't you paying attention to how they, you know, the, the Davis franchise with the Raiders? That's why. Because... Snyder's not making money for the league and he has these allegations. So Dan, I, I think that's an interesting part of the story on ESPN's reporting. We'll give him credit that those two combinations are, are different from other owners that we've seen in other sports. Now, for me, it's not the financial performance. It's the inability to get a stadium deal done in one of these three jurisdictions. I mean, I kind of point to a couple of comparisons here. They got Al Capone for tax evasion. They got Donald Sterling for lack of testamentary capacity in that probate proceeding, when in both of those situations, 
the conduct that they really got him for was something else, you know, murder and, of course, the racist comments. For Dan Snyder, his Waterloo may not be Mary Jo White. It may not be the toxic workplace investigation. It may be his inability to get stadium funding and incredible, stunning inability to close the deal in Virginia on a new stadium. Just imagine that you have a football team that is looking for a new home and you have three jurisdictions, D.C., Virginia, Maryland, all vying to have an NFL team. And then there's sports wagering. Those jurisdictions are also offering teams online and in-person sports books. This is a perfect storm for an owner that's minimally competent to go into the state legislature, play these three states or two states or one district off one another to secure the most lucrative stadium deal of all time. Yet Dan Snyder was on the figurative one yard line. He had the two leaders in the Virginia legislature sponsoring a stadium bill. And then all this stuff comes out at the last minute with the uh, congressional you know, hearing and these new claims. And now he becomes toxic. He can't, he, you know, the Virginia deal didn't even go into a conference committee. The legislation stalled and he's without a new stadium. DC won't give him one. Virginia won't give him one. Maryland won't give him one. And that's costing his fellow owners a lot of money. And it sets a bad precedent going forward that if these three states are saying no to the NFL, that could have a channeling effect when other NFL teams try to extort state legislatures into believing that they're going to be moving. Maybe next year, the New York legislature says to Buffalo, you know, tough, we're not going to give you, uh, you know, funding for a new stadium. Virginia didn't give the commanders a new stadium. We're not going to give you one. And then there's the issue of funding and a loan. He can't afford to self-finance a new stadium. He's going to have to go to his fellow owners and to the NFL for a construction loan and a stadium development loan. They're not going to give him one. So I believe that the tax evasion and the testamentary capacity analog when it comes to Dan Snyder is going to be the stadium thing. This is what's going to end his ownership tenure with the Washington Commanders. But I believe that would be hypocritical and nobody would believe it for a second if that's the reason he's forced to sell his ownership interest. I think the league needs to be honest, transparent, and there's enough alleged misconduct at issue here to force him to sell his ownership interest. The, the Beth Wilkinson report, which never got released, now we're going to have the prospect of a Mary Jo White investigative finding, a congressional report from the House Oversight Committee, and then looming in the background, there's the discovery that's going to be requested in the John Gruden case. So if the stadium situation doesn't get him, I think we have, at least going forward in the future, three potential landmines that are going to sink Dan Snyder. But the longer the league takes to make a decision here, it's going to cast this pall of uncertainty over Snyder, the commanders, the league. This is bad for the NFL to have a weakened franchise in the District of Columbia. And as long as Snyder remains the owner of the commanders, the NFL has, in effect, only 31 teams. I'm slightly laughing, Dan, when you said lack of testamentary capacity, because I have I have an argument that might even be stronger, right? Part of the CSPN article, Dan, interestingly says that the way to cure these issues, at least in Snyder's head, he's speaking to confidence that I guess spoke to ESPN, that among them, right, getting a new stadium was, I think that's Snyder's main focus, see if he can do it. But one of them was getting a premier quarterback. And part of the reporting is that- I'm just wondering if Dave Gettleman is advising him. Right. I mean, getting a premier quarterback, okay, maybe get Brady, get Rodgers. The man got Carson Wentz and the man traded a, a, well, I don't want to say, we'll see, the team 
Carson Wentz gave up two third round picks. The, potentially it's two thirds and a second or two seconds and a third, depending on Carson Wentz's snaps. He pays, uh, plays 70% of snaps and they, they gave up a second in Carson Wentz. But here's the thing, Dan, right? The, the reports, I don't, think, I don't think it's really ever been officially out there, but as part of this initial Beth Wilkinson punishment, Snyder was reportedly, allegedly, whatever you want to call it, told to stay away from the team indefinitely. And his wife, Tanya Snyder, was to take over day-to-day handling. As part of the story, it says that, you know, that Snyder was behind the Carson Wentz trade. He wanted to make it happen. Ron Rivera, the coach, is since playing a little bit of defense, but ESPN article says, no, it was a Snyder call. The problem with that, Dan, is that trade occurred in March of 2022. So either that was a directive that had somehow expired by March, which I don't think was the case, or alternatively, that Snyder, right, talking about lack of testamentary capacity, just didn't care about Goodell's directive, and he was going to do what Dan wanted to do, which then would be, I don't know, reason four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, that this would be a very high priority on Goodell's list. You can't have other owners, right, pissed off at Snyder, but you can't have Snyder in theory, right, this is being alleged to have occurred here, is violating an order from Goodell and don't be involved with the team. That means not demanding a trade for Carson Wentz. So add it to the list, Dan, of, of reasons why, you know, that that list, uh, Dan, what do they need, 24 votes to get to get them out, assuming they do it? Is it 24? I think yeah, 24 it. under the NFL Constitution and bylaws. Uh, if, if the NFL commissioner makes a recommendation that the ownership consider the forfeiture of, of the ownership interest, it's going to take 24 out of 32. The standard of proof, or at least the evidentiary threshold is not clear and convincing evidence. It's not, you don't need a substantive crime. It's just conduct detrimental to the welfare of the league. And if you could sideline Tom Brady over the inflation in a football under this amorphous conduct detrimental clause, it could certainly cover what's taking place under Dan Snyder's, uh, you know, watch. And for me, the most serious transgression, I mean, they're all pretty serious when you, when you're settling a sexual misconduct lawsuit for $1.6 million. There has to be some kind of there, there. And that victim is talking to Mary Jo White. That will be his undoing. But for me as a lawyer, as somebody who believes in the sanctity of the justice system and and arriving at the truth, the issue of witness intimidation and the tactics, the hardball tactics that Snyder and his legal counsel have engaged in to prevent people from talking, cooperating with Beth Wilkinson, and to intimidate witnesses. As a lawyer, that's probably one of the most offensive things you could have happen, to try to destroy the credibility of witnesses unfairly and intimidate them into not testifying and prevent them from testifying. And I think the commissioner should focus on that aspect, because that's already proven. Right. You have uh, you maybe you have some disagreement as to what really happened with some of the underlying events, even though Mary Jo White's report should be very painstaking, painstaking and conclusive. But what's not open to debate is the Reed Smith aspect of it and the interfering with Beth Wilkinson's investigation and the ongoing attempts to intimidate witnesses. That alone should be grounds for his expulsion from the NFL. And there's a lot to choose from here. You have a pretty wide menu of misconduct. And the great thing about it, or maybe the bad thing about it, is that it's, it doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon. And there's a lot of different things to choose from. But I, I go back to, to looking at this overall in the aggregate. And if any one of these items alone were enough, certainly in the aggregate, they, they paint a vast picture that the aggregate of all these incidents and areas of, 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 of transgression and misconduct 
the aggregate aspect of this should be enough for the league to proceed because never in the annals of the NFL history has there ever been an owner like this. We had the wars, we had the litigations between Al Davis, Pete Rozelle, but there was never an issue of Al Davis's personal misconduct. These fights were over antitrust issues and team relocations and the business of the National Football League. They never devolved into issues of personal misconduct or toxic workplace environment or mistreating women or sexually assaulting women. This is just on another scale entirely. And the NFL's reputation and integrity is on the line for them to act and to do nothing would be essentially suborning, acquiescing to this type of conduct within an NFL franchise. And you just can't have that. The league is not only going to lose face, it's going to lose reputational value and goodwill by allowing the league to, to proceed here with only 31 teams and to have a known you know, offender of this magnitude within its ownership ranks. The time is now to cut the cord. Yeah, the NBA found a way to get Robert Sarver out voluntarily. You know, not the same type of allegations, but Dan, you mentioned that Dan Snyder is unlike any owner in, in NFL history. I think unlike any owner in, in sports, and Dan, as much as people talk about Donald Sterling, you and I know, and Marge Schott, and this one, that one, no league in the four major sports has ever forced an owner to sell. It has never happened. Maybe it'll happen with Snyder, Dan. No shortage of content for you and I. Well, uh, why won't we take the, the question is, yeah. and it's a, an obvious question to answer, but why wouldn't he take his $5.6 billion payoff? That's the estimated value of the Washington Commanders franchise. And $5.6 billion is not a far-fetched number when you consider that the new owner is going to walk into a favorable stadium deal and have a license to operate online sports betting. I think Snyder's entire validation as a person comes from his ownership of the commanders. He has no friends. He's just basically going to be, he's going to retreat to his mansion and never be heard from again. His only validation in the public is as a, is as an ineffectual, incompetent, mean-spirited owner of an NFL franchise, but he's still the owner of an NFL team. And that gives him in his mind, some level of importance. If he sells, he's already a billionaire. Another $5.6 billion, sure, it's going to feel great, but at the end of the day, he's going to be reduced to irrelevance publicly. And I think he fears and doesn't want to be relegated to the dustbins of history. And as long as he owns an NFL team, he's important. Once he sells that, no one's ever going to hear from him again. I think you are right. Um, and that's the sentiment. I guess, Dan, if the Broncos can get $4 billion, there's reports that the Phoenix Suns might even match what the Broncos got. And then all bets are off for what a team could get in a major media market like Washington after the Broncos just went for four. So The nation's capital. Yeah. With, with the pr- prospect new stadium and a license for online sports betting, you know how much money those are going to generate? If you get a license for online sports betting in Maryland, Virginia, uh, I, I mean, that, that generates, you know, it could generate you know, mid five figures annually in new cash stream. And over a 20 year period, you're looking at you know, close to a billion dollars of newfound revenue. That's a team that's easily going to sell for $5 billion or more. Just think of the rich history of the Washington Commanders going all the way back to the Redskins. This is not, this is not the Broncos. This is not, you know, the you know, Titans. This is one of the flagship franchises of the NFL that date all the way back to the George Hallis Red Grange era in the nation's capital. 
this is going to fetch an obscene amount of money because the owner of this team becomes the most important owner in professional sports. He basically is the white knight who comes along and saves the day. You think Jeff Bezos wouldn't want that? Somebody can cut a big check, but this team's still got to win. But Dan, I, I not agree with you, but let's focus on getting Snyder out. Then we'll focus on the valuation. Okay. Speaking of large sums of money that only NFL owners can afford, last topic that we're going to hit on the St. Louis Rams. Before we do that, some business on our end. Our podcast sponsored by Themis Bar Review. We had Emily on the podcast this past week. Taryn was on the podcast a couple episodes ago. Both use Themis Bar Review to pass. Head to themisbar.com slash condetrimental or just reach out to us and we will get you in touch. Dan, one other piece of business, OHF Law, that's our friends, or Horgan and Flengy. That is the law firm to go in Nebraska if you're looking at litigation. But Dan, we're going to get into a heavy topic here. We'll say the sponsor is sponsored by, again, OHF Law in Nebraska or Horgan and Flengy. Topic, Dan, that involves some indemnification. We are heading back to St. Louis for this story. Dan, I'm going to let you paint the picture. Normally I do it, but I, I know the St. Louis baby is very close to you. And you you came across this. I, I missed this on the St. Louis blog. Long and short, Dan, right? I think uh, we're finally going to figure out who's paying uh, that $790, right? The, the legal fees associated with it? Yeah, at this point, Dan, it, it, it really is just a bookkeeping issue among NFL owners. I don't think it's a major you know, story to cover on an ongoing basis, you know, except for if it ends up in the court system. Let's go back to the ownership meeting when they had the vote on the St. Louis Rams relocation saga. The owners insisted on an indemnification provision, right? They had that they changed their vote. Kroenke uh, lost the original vote. The proposed relocation to from St. Louis to Los Angeles was voted down by the NFL owners. Jerry Jones twisted some arms behind the scenes. There was a new vote. It passed, but not before an indemnification provision was drafted to protect the owners from litigation because they knew that if a a team in St. Louis was ripped out of St. Louis and brought to another market, that there would be a lawsuit filed by the city and county of St. Louis. And the owners wanted to protect themselves and be indemnified from any, you know, I guess, risk associated with that lawsuit. However, the indemnification language that was actually drafted, I think was, you know, much narrower than what the owners probably intended. I mean, when you think about who comprises this ownership group, they're all billionaires. So if you're a billionaire owner, are you seeking indemnification for just the NFL outside counsel's legal fees, which are only going to be a few million dollars or let's say $10 million? You divide that among 32 teams. That's basically a couple of nickels per NFL franchise. Or are you seeking protection for the runaway risk of punitive damages and damages in general, which could be in excess of a billion dollars. That's the real issue that you're seeking indemnification on. But the language of the indemnification agreement that was actually drafted was the phrase that was used in the indemnification provision to protect the NFL owners from litigation over the relocation. The phrase was costs, including legal fees and other litigation expenses. You don't see the word damages, judgments, or liabilities anywhere in that indemnification provision. So it raises several questions. Does that language alone preclude damages? Is that language unambiguous? And if it's unambiguous, as lawyers, how do we understand costs, legal fees, and litigation expenses to mean? We, we, we certainly, as litigators, understand prevailing party you know, you know, statutory provisions that define costs as basically the out-of-pocket costs, such as, you know, 
costs of transcripts and actual hard costs associated with the litigation, but not the damages. So if that language is unambiguous, Stan Kroenke wins. If that language is ambiguous and it's left to the determination of Roger Goodell or a court as to what was in the contemplation of the parties, then I think you're potentially looking at a win for the other NFL owners because you can't, you can never convince that these owners were seeking recompense just for lawyers' fees. It just makes no sense given the magnitude of what they were staring down. This is the conversation you and I had once upon a time. Obviously, very poorly drafted. <laughs> I don't I don't love to be in the business of calling lawyers out for for their, you know, their misgivings, but it's a very poorly drafted document. My understanding, Dan, I think if it was going to it was typed. It wasn't back of the napkin stuff. No, I, I agree. I mean, but I think the intent, and this is where I think you and I, I think we see eye to eye. You can tell me if I if you disagree, but I think the intent and the conversations that occurred in the room, most likely, I think have maybe even reported by some former guests of our show, were intended to include all potential monies, be it fees, damages, and whatnot. But at the end of the day, right, what was reduced to writing doesn't contain a very clear word. It's very easy. Dan, we spent so much time on this podcast talking about force majeure clauses during the COVID stuff, you know, two, two years ago or a year ago, whatever it was. And when they didn't say the word, right, epidemic or pandemic or, you know, something caused by disease or whatnot, it wasn't clear if the force majeure applied. So, you know, this was a, an agreement, I think, predated the COVID stuff, if, if, you know, obviously, because relocation was many years before that. But it still doesn't excuse poor drafting. I mean, I don't know why that would have been rushed. It's a legitimately, right, hundreds of millions of dollars at stake. You can't take the time and, and go through this. Dan, I'm working on agreements at, at the new firm I'm at. We do about five or six different, you know, re- reviews. One person will look at another person will look at we'll change this, we'll change that, you know, with anything. And that's that's what you pay for when you when you use a good firm. And I don't I don't know. Again, I don't know the lawyers that were behind this. I know, you know, the NFL's uh, GC or legal person, I think, had their hands on it. I don't know if they gave it to an outside counsel, but the final product is woefully deficient. And it's probably right. It's probably a fire offense. If it was an outside counsel, you're probably not using them again, to be honest. Well, I, w- I would imagine the NFL just lifted boilerplate language from one of their prior agreements in the realm of relocation settlements or, or indemnifications. But you have to remember back in the 1990s, the threat of billion dollar awards didn't loom over cities. There had never been anything quite like the St. Louis case so to have lifted language that you know, maybe covered the Cleveland Browns or one of the 1990s era relocations certainly didn't fit the magnitude of the given situation. But let's let's put our judges hats on here. And if I'm sitting as the arbitrator or the judge, I'm finding that this language costs litigation expenses is ambiguous within this setting because the, the parties haven't defined it. If this is like if this is an agreement concerning like this is a, if this is a settlement agreement drafted by lawyers then I would then I would probably find you know in the context if this was a settlement agreement drafted in the context of actual litigation, then you could say that costs has a defined meaning under you know the federal rules of civil procedure and it just covers the out of pocket costs. But since this is a pre litigation indemnification agreement, I'm not so certain that you can look to the federal rules of civil procedure or any state litigation statutes to define what costs and expenses mean. Because once you start referring to outside sources and to dictionaries, 
you're really considering extrinsic evidence. And once you begin in, it, it, considering extrinsic evidence and outside evidence, you have to primarily look to the intent of the parties. The words themselves don't have secondary meaning. They're ambiguous within that context. And as a judge, I would want to hear about some of the negotiations, what the parties believed. I would want to hear testimony from the, from the NFL owners. And I would have to think that the context under which this arose was a fear over outsized billion dollar plus damages. And we're talking about damages. It wasn't the fear that the NFL lawyers would present a bill for like $4 million that would have to be divided by 31 owners. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Uh, it's beyond the pale. It defies believability. This had to have intended to compensate the owners for damages. So that's where it's going to head if it's decided by a judge who follows rules of contract interpretation. You have to establish or assess whether the words in a vacuum are ambiguous or unambiguous. And once you make the determination that they, that they are ambiguous, then these rules of contract interpretation come into play when you consider what the intent of the parties was through extrinsic evidence. And I would have to think the, the extrinsic evidence is going to bolster the position of the other 31 NFL owners. And, and mind you, this is going to be decided in the first instance by Roger Goodell, who probably has never heard of rules of contract interpretation. So that's a separate issue entirely, but I think he's going to want to try to strike a compromise to you know, split the difference or to at least have some meeting in the middle because for Stan Kroenke to walk away, got free with absolutely no culpability here and two championships, the Colorado Aval Avalanche and the, and the and Los Angeles Rams, and then to get off the hook on any of these indemnification damages, it's just so mind boggling that someone who's committed such misconduct and violence upon the city of St. Louis and basically get away with murder. I don't have that much further to add, Dan. I, I will say one little, just trying to give people practice tips here. You might be a lawyer inclined on Cronky's side and you read this document and you're like, hey, this isn't pretty clear. This isn't clear what we owe, if it covers a settlement, right? It doesn't cover damages after trial for settlement. And you might be a, a lawyer thinking like, hey, maybe I should tell the NFL that this is poorly written. So there's, um, Dan, a funny story. I have a the partner that runs the music practice at our firm. He was telling me, we just were speaking one of my first days, and he was telling me, he told me a similar story. He goes, if the contract or whatever the agreement is, is vague, but it's in your favor, do not say a word. Or similarly, right, if it's vague, or I think the way, if it's unconscionable, and it's very clearly unconscionable, and it cannot be enforced, you know, maybe you have to make a decision on that one. But if it's not going to be enforceable as unconscionable, then maybe it's another reason not to say anything because the court might strike that entire paragraph. So this is why you ask lawyers these tough questions, these judgment calls. I imagine, Dan, just to finish the point, I imagine, right, somebody saw that it was vague. And if it was Cronky's side, the smart move would be not to say anything. And now that has led to this conversation. So, yes, you got to look at every period, every comma, every word and every agreement, because something like this could happen. Something so small, one word being left out of that, that agreement. And now we're here with even a modicum of you know indecisiveness is because it was a poorly drafted contract. Dan, I don't know if unconscionability comes into play here. That's kind of gun to the head, procedural and substantive yeah, unconscionability. Give it, give it a practice tip here. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think unconscionability is the issue. One potential issue is who drafted this agreement? 
you know, there's, there's the principle of contract interpretation that you construe the contract. It, where there are ambiguities, you construe the contract against the drafter of the contract. And I would imagine that the drafter of the contract, or the, the, the NFL, not Kroenke. So depending upon how this broader agreement reads, if the, you know, we, we need to find out whether the contract was a mutual joint work product. But if it's a sole work product of the NFL, maybe you construe the ambiguity against the drafter of the contract. But it would be, it would be an illogical result to arrive at a conclusion which presupposes that 31 NFL owners were so fearful of having to pay a lawyer's bill that they would agree only to have indemnification on a lawyer's bill without any attention paid to damages. By the way, I've been a lawyer for 30 years. You've been a lawyer for a long time too. We've seen our share of indemnification. Not 30 years, not quite 30 years. This is the first indemnification agreement in history (laughs) that has not included the word damages within the scope of, of actions that give rise to indemnification. We've seen, we've seen these clauses. They say claims, costs, actions, causes of action, choses in action, damages, liabilities, orders, you know, everything under the sun is shoehorned into an indemnification provision. Everyone I've ever seen, bar none, has included the word damages. Yet, the National Football League, which is represented by Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison, the National Football League, a multi-billion dollar global corporation, has yielded the first indemnification agreement in history that forgot to include the word damages. And Stan Kroenke is going to argue that that exclusion had to have been intentional because this is not a sloppy operation. You know, they know how to draft indemnification provisions. And Kroenke is going to argue, well, that's what we agreed to. And that there was a, a very specific reason why damages were not included. But you're going to have testimony from 31 other owners. And you might have emails and memos pointing to the fear and the risk that the owners didn't want to be on the hook for hundreds of millions of dollars of damages or billions of dollars of damages. That was the risk that the NFL owners were trying to mitigate against. And I'll never be convinced that this was a battle over saving a few pennies per franchise. It just makes absolutely no sense. So it's an interesting contract law issue if this were to go to a U.S. district court or to a state court. But the league will never allow that to happen. The league is certainly averse to having any of its dirty laundry ever aired in a public court. So this will be resolved privately either by Goodell seeking a compromise or through private arbitration that never sees the light of day of a courthouse. But of course, arbitration awards have to be confirmed or vacated in federal court. So without a compromise, this this could come at some point in time, but we may see, we may have some transparency around some of the arguments if this ever ends up in a court. Dan, I think we can end that there. Two quick uh, notes before we officially close this, Dan, unless you have anything else. We covered about uh, two episodes ago the story of this fishing cheating scandal, just an update for anyone that has not seen it. Those two fishermen who were putting the weights in the fish, Stephanie brought her friend, uh, the captain. He was this big Massachusetts fisher. I think he was, uh, was catching tuna, big fish. We put a lot of time into the story. Dan, those two fishermen were just indicted on fifth degree felony charges of cheating and attempted grand theft and possessing criminal tools. So cheaters never prosper, cheaters never win. There's certainly proof of that. The other one, Dan, which I, I imagine we're going to cover in the next couple months as the story heats up. 
a story that we did a double episode on. We spent actually a lot of time on the Tyler Skaggs passing, but the criminal case involving former Angels employee Eric Kay. He had a sentencing. He is sentenced to 22 years in prison. Apparently, there was a deal on the table pre-verdict where he could have taken anywhere between five and 10 years, rejected it, got hit pretty hard uh, at trial, and now is facing or now is getting 22 years in prison. Dan, that might not be it on the on the Skag saga, is that we have these civil cases, I believe, coming up in the next couple months. Now, the criminal case is done, and those involve, unless the case is settled at some point, those do involve claims against the Los Angeles Angels. I think there are two separate wrongful death cases. So not going to hear, you're not going to certainly hear the end of that story, narcotics and sports. I wanted to make sure, you know, our audience was aware of, of two big updates. Yeah. As as we've yeah. how, would you, how would you feel as a prospective new owner of the Los Angeles Angels, right? You know, the team is being put up for sale and you have these clouds over the franchise in three separate areas. You have the prospect of liability arising out of the, you know, the Skaggs tragedy. Uh, that that could just be significant. You also have the the stadium issue, which re- remains a cloud. And of course, you're going to lose Otani in a year. He's not going to sign with the team. He's not going to sign with, you know, Marino as the current owner, as a, as a lame duck owner. He's he's probably going to walk himself to free agency. You have Mike Trout's, uh, you know, sort of injury status being up in the air as the owner of a team or prospective new owner of a team. You have absolutely no idea what you're buying now. So I, I think it'd be very interesting how uh, the, the agreement, the purchase and sale agreement is structured to mitigate. And this is going to be a new indemnification provision. Hopefully they'll get that one right. I have a good story for you. Are you ready for this? You know, in my, uh, my legal career doesn't span 30 years, but I've had some experience litigating against teams in various contexts. And Dan, you, you said something interesting and you are correct. If there is a change in ownership, what they do, right, is they look at the debts, they look at the liabilities, they speak to the insurance people. If there's a case like that looming out there, right, uh, potential exposure where the team is on trial in a civil case, yes, that's going to be on the attention of any potential new owner. So certain things I don't think really affect the valuation of the team. Like, I think, again, Snyder stuff, when the team is sold, it's not going to really matter. But a looming case out there like that, I've had some personal experience. I don't know that's being factored in by the owners that pick the team, actually, how much they want discount, to discount. Discount. A deep discount. Discount, or, or there is more of a push to settle those types of cases. But you're you're certainly right. Dan, anything else to add on any sphere before we put this episode in the books? No, I think we're good. This is our NFL episode for the week. I, you know how much I love NFL sports law stories. So I think we uh, we have enough for one week. And uh, we're going to watch these you know, stories going forward because I think the Snyder one is sort of on the precipice of blowing up. So this won't be the last time we revisit the Dan Snyder ownership tenure with the Washington Commanders. They're going to they're going to be re- repercussions and there may be immediate repercussions. So that's the that's going to be, I think, the focus of several future conduct detrimental episodes. I think suffice it to say, we won't really be talking about the St. Louis indemnification issue for a long time until that's resolved. That's just a bookkeeping issue. And I think with Watson, uh, I'm going to abide by my rule. I don't want to even discuss it again because I think it is covered by the indemnification, not the indemnification, it's covered by the settlement agreement, but just great topics. We seem to never have a shortage of great NFL stories. Without the NFL, I don't think there's a conduct detrimental, honestly. Dan, um, I think it's a good place to end it, and I think you are 100% right. Quick shout out as we put this episode officially over to our friend of the show, Mike uh, Donatio. He uh, has been the recently named 
general counsel of the Pittsburgh Penguins. So friend of the show, listen to the show, someone that's judged the New York Law School soccer competition. We have Justin Sievert now, friend of the show, Jacksonville Jaguars GC, of course, Dan Worley, the Tennessee Titans, you know, the GC, former, uh, obviously, co-host of this show. Dan, we got friends in high places, so the show keeps growing Keep getting people, uh, friends hired in different sports. So certainly great to see. And yeah, we keep uh, having our, our network grow on the kind of detrimental community. Yeah, and I think that's a good place to end it. Yeah, a very fun episode. Always fun joining you. Dan, uh, I think we're ready to end this. For all of us here at Conduct Detrimental, we'll see you next time on another episode of Conduct Detrimental.